folks, and welcome welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajimam, again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Native Shark, which is an online platform for learning Japanese. And what Native Shark do is they make learning Japanese really, really simple. You log in, you click a button that says study now, and the platform then shows you exactly what you need to learn next based on your previous progress. Now, again, this is simple, but the way it's designed means that students who use Native Shark once a day for four to five months can complete the equivalent of over two years of university study. And this is not just um, them patting themselves on the back. Now that Native Shark's been in business for over a year, the results are in. So this is exactly what people are saying. Uh, just looking at the couple of posts in their community forums. And the student community, by the way, is one of the best things about the platform. So one person's writing, most productive year I've had learning Japanese. And then another one says, I've started learning over a year ago with all of these other platforms. And what I learned there is only a fraction of what I've learned on Native Shark in just three months. And then yet another one goes, in my mind, my study timeline only started with Native Shark because that's when I really started learning consistently and on and on. So yet the proofs in the pudding, it's definitely the best online course out there. And since you've heard about it here on the podcast, you also get an extra little bonus. If you sign up for the free trial uh, using the URL nativeshark.com forward slash NTI, and we'll link to it in this episode's show notes. So that's native without an E. So N-A-T-I-V shark, all one word, dot com forward slash N-T-I. You use that link to sign up and you'll get a double length free trial. So two weeks free instead of just the one. No need to put in your credit card, anything of that sort. You can just sign up, give it a shot, and chances are at the end of these two weeks, you'll already be far ahead of wherever you are with your Japanese at the moment, whether you're just starting out or you're already in knee deep. Give it a shot. NativeShark.com forward slash NTI. Okay, so for today's episode, I've had the pleasure of being a guest in Jason Ball's Business in Japan Clubhouse and Zoom event last week. Now, if you're an expat living in Japan, and particularly if you've got a LinkedIn account, chances are you know who Jason is, or at least you know about the Business in Japan group, which he runs. It's Japan's biggest English language networking group, business networking group, with close to 70,000 members. Now, Jason's a good friend. We've known each other for about eight years now, as he'll tell you on the recording as well. And I've spoken at a couple of his events in the past, back in the days when we were having these events face to face, which little by little might be a thing again soon, fingers crossed. And as I might have mentioned in one of our recent episodes, Jason's also going to be a guest speaker in our business networking and board card gaming event this coming December in Fukuoka City. So we'll link to his profile, the Business in Japan group, and of course, the December weekend event page in this episode show notes. So Jason's asked me if I could be a guest in his online clubhouse room, which take place every Monday at 12 p.m. Japan Standard Time, and speak about purchasing property in Japan, the main differences between purchasing here as opposed to other countries, uh, who our clients are, what they're normally purchasing for cash with a loan, for how much, which locations are good for first-time investors to purchase in, and of course, to take questions from the audience, and there were quite a few of those. So nice, long conversation on all things related to Japanese real estate. Enjoy it. I certainly did. And I'll see you again on the other side. Um, if you're interested in that and you're on LinkedIn, um, go and follow the Business in Japan group. Join the Business in, Gram, uh, in Japan group. Follow me here. 
um, connect with me and let me know if I can help you. But today I'm welcoming someone I've known for quite some time now. I remember he came and spoke uh, in Tokyo all the way from Fukuoka. It must be uh, eight years ago now. <laughs> um, and uh, we often catch up when he does get to Tokyo. Uh, it, I'm welcoming Ziv. Um, how do you pronounce Ma Megan? Magen? Magen, yeah. Magen. It's funny that the Nakajima is easy for everyone living here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Much easier. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe um, I know you're extremely comfortable talking on a uh, mic and, and also I've been on um, Clubhouse pretty much as long as I have. Uh, when it was booming, we were talking uh, in the same day or at least listening to each other. So tell us, tell uh, anyone here who doesn't know you a little bit about um, yourself and how long you've been in Japan, your relevance uh, to that and uh, anything else you want to share about yourself before we get in, get, get into the subject. Yeah, sure. Thanks for that. Um, so hi everyone, my name is Ziv Nakajima again, and my partner Chikako and I, um, she's originally from Japan, we moved to Japan together uh, just about a decade ago now, and we've been running a small real estate advisory and portfolio management uh, company since, uh, well actually for a year before that when we were still living in Australia. And what we do essentially is... Um, we help foreigners, whether they're resident in Japan or overseas, I'd say about 80% of our customers are overseas, and we assist them in uh, researching and conducting due diligence on, uh, purchasing, selling, and managing the real estate uh, holdings in Japan, whether it's investment properties, which was what we started off with and is probably still the larger part of our work, um, or holiday homes or land for development, commercial properties, what have you. We're probably not super active in the uh, homeowners, uh, on the homeowners front because there are real estate agents in each and every city that can usually assist with that even if you are a foreigner and you also need to um, go with them hand in hand and review properties and look at them personally. But anything that does require um, a bit more uh, investment or financial know-how or holiday homes, which are often purchased remotely or with very few visits, um, that's usually our forte, our expertise. Right, and, and just to explain what a buyer's agent is generally, because uh, I'd never heard of that when I arrived in Japan 18 years ago, but uh, even back in Australia, it's very common... Uh, common service these days? Yeah, so a buyer's agent is essentially somebody who takes the buyer's side on any real estate transaction and it can be um, with full hands-on representation or it can be just on a consulting basis depending on how involved the uh, purchaser actually wants to be. And what we help them do it because real estate agents, even when they're extremely professional, they're still transactional base. So your typical realtor will be focused, and there are exceptions of course, but mainly they'll be focused on particular sales or particular quotas or um, particular pools of properties that they've got under their company name or they've got exclusive access to that they want to sell. So they're not necessarily um, completely in line with whatever you as the buyer wants to achieve. So. They're obviously not going to advise you to go with a different agency if they think a, um, a different property is perhaps more suitable to your needs. They're not going to help you. I mean, they, they will definitely divulge the information that they need to divulge by law, but they're not necessarily going to be pointing out any issues that you might not be aware of unless 
they absolutely have to um, for understandable reasons because they've got a, a sale to make or a quota to meet. So a buyer's agent is an added service that uh, real estate property buyers pay for. And what we do is we really represent only the buyer and only the buyer's interests. We don't have any particular properties that we're interested in selling or offloading. We don't have any particular locations or budget that we'd rather be um, assisting you with purchasing. We we hear your criteria, we hear your needs, we provide um, our expertise and our consultation based on um, what that criteria is and what we believe will be most helpful in achieving it. And then we can, again, depending on whether you're uh, remote or present in Japan and depending on whether um, your language skills are uh, up to speed with what needs to be done on a professional basis, we can also um, either hold your hand and consult you through the process or we can just take over with a, a power of attorney document that you give over to us and conduct the entire settlement on your behalf. And then the, the second part of what we do is we're portfolio managers or not, not property managers because if that, that usually refers to the people handling the tenants directly, but we will take care um, of your holiday home or on your behalf, or we will take care of your investment property by dealing um, with the property managers, with the tenants, renovation companies, uh, building management companies, insurance companies, whoever needs to be involved, we we give the um, owners of the properties a sort of single point of contact um, in English for everything to do with whether they've got a single property or a portfolio of them. And also down the track, if they need to sell, we can assist them with that as well. Fantastic. And uh, as you were saying, uh, this is about your 10-year anniversary doing this, isn't it? Um, yep, just about. We started uh, our activity in late 2011, officially incorporated in January 2012. So just going on uh, 10 years now, yes. Okay. Fantastic. All right. And then in line with the, um, the subject that we uh, put out there for today, purchasing and managing property across Japan. Um, and that, that's where you're talking about investment properties and holiday homes and uh, all the unique differences between Japan and, and uh, the rest of the world and how it works here. Um, do you want to kick us off? And, and uh, everyone I encourage who's interested in, um, in this subject, take some notes. Bring out a bit of paper and jot uh, down some questions you might have or comments, and we'll soon open it up for you to jump up on stage and uh, ask us some questions or share your experience. And anyone there on... Um, on Zoom, uh, just drop it in uh, chat and I'll ask it on your behalf. So without further ado, Ziv, take it away. What do we need to know about purchasing and managing property across Japan? Um, well, I mean, there's an, there's an endless amount of information to know, but I think maybe focusing on, um, on the way you presented it and the way you put in the description, maybe a little bit about the main differences between operating here and overseas, because um, a lot of us who are used to uh, buying or selling or leasing out properties overseas uh, might be used to things being a little bit different. Um, so maybe from the top down, um, and that probably applies more to investment properties than anything else, but um, Japan as opposed to a lot of, uh, especially a lot of Western countries, but also a lot of Asian countries, um, Japan is not really a capital growth sort of environment so when people invest in property here um let's put this way, when people invest in property overseas there's usually the assumption uh, whether it's um always accurate or not is a different matter but there's usually the assumption that property 
gains in value over time. So that can be a case of you retaining your capital, um, which might be relevant if you've got a home or a holiday home or an investment property. And it could be pertaining to how you actually make your money on it. So you assume that the property will gain in value over time. Therefore, if and when you decide to resell it or you decide to refinance a loan and draw on your equity and so forth, there is the general assumption that barring um, some sort of unanticipated crisis, there's a general assumption that the property will gain in value over time. Now, that's not the case in Japan, not to say that it doesn't happen. It does occasionally happen. Um, it happens with cases of particular cities, which might have been unknown previously and then gained in popularity. If you take um, Fukuoka, where we live, for instance, or you take Nagoya, where the new uh, Shinkansen train line is being built and, and rolled out. So there are particular locations and points in time where a particular city might gain in value. And when Japan's economy does well uh, overall, there are particular pockets, uh, let's say Tokyo, Osaka, that gain in value. There are locations that are more attractive to uh, foreign tourists that suddenly take a boost, like uh, Niseko had a big uh, jump forward when the Australians started coming in about 10, 15 years ago. But generally and overall, property here does not gain value um, exponentially as it does in other countries. So if you look at Australia or the USA, where again, barring crisis, people sort of assumes that there'll be at least a seven year positive cycle, maybe followed by a seven year stagnant cycle and then going up again. Um, this is not the case here. And it's not the case here for a variety of reasons. One of the main ones being that Japan's actually suffered a deflationary cycle uh, between the early 90s and just about the end of 2012. Um, that's where the early 90s is when the latest uh, economy and property bubble burst here and things have been going downhill from there all the way up until um, Abe-san became prime minister in late 2012 on his second stint, the successful one. And since then, Property prices, again, in central attractive locations, so um, Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, have been gaining in value. Um, but the rest of the country um, has remained pretty stagnant. Um, additionally to that, the, the only thing that does gain value here is the land. So properties in Japan are generally not built to last. And that refers more to the houses than it does to the um, concrete condo blocks, the mansions. So the houses here are made from um, not very durable materials. They're basically built with the assumption that they'll be rebuilt uh, after about 20, 30 years, or at least renovated significantly so that it almost amounts to a rebuild. And so from a tax perspective, but also from a market value perspective, these properties do not tend to hold their value or the structure doesn't tend to hold its value. And what really can gain in value if and when it does is only the land. So that, that's maybe the first um, misconception that people who are especially looking to invest, but also looking to purchase their own properties um, probably should be aware of is that this um, uh, unspoken or, or spoken assumption that uh, property values will always go up is definitely not the case in Japan. It's great when it happens. It's a bonus from a capital perspective, but it's not something that you would be building uh, a purchase or investment strategy on. Right. Okay. Uh, and so the opposite of, of the capital growth then is you would you would do it to earn some money rather than having it sit in a bank 
you put it into some property that's already rented and uh, you're able to earn money on your money. Is that the general consensus? So for investment properties, it is. It is a very, Japan's a very attractive um, cash flow oriented market. So rents here compared to other countries in the developed world at least um, are quite high compared to the uh, price of the property itself. And those uh, two and a half decades of deflation uh, have actually helped with that because properties um, at the bottom of that cycle, properties were just under less than half what they were pre-bubble burst. And rents, while they have gone down, haven't gone down as much as that. So when we started our business, we could see uh, net pre-tax yields of anywhere between uh, 9 to 15% before tax uh, per annum on the price of the property. These days, the market has recovered a fair bit. So these days, if we get to eight, eight and a half percent, we're quite satisfied, but that is still a lot higher than what you could get in other uh, developed parts of the world. And the other the other aspect of that uh, attractive cash flow is the fact that the tenants and the professional services and the companies, so everybody that you essentially work with as an investor or a property portfolio holder, are extremely hassle-free and easy to manage. So the tenants tend to stay for a long time and they've got very little demands in most cases. There are nearly no um, legal issues with tenants. There are no forced evictions or, or deadbeats that you know continuously don't pay the rent and you have to uh, resort to legal action to force them to pay or to kick them out. It, does happen here that a tenant might be occasionally late or short on a, on a few rental payments, but there's not going to be anywhere near the um, the issues that you'd be facing in other countries with those sort of tenants. And also in other countries, if you're purchasing in the high high yield end of the market, which would mean affordable, smaller, older properties, um, in the USA, for example, in many cases, you'll be buying in outright ghettos. And even in other countries, you'll be buying in... Um, locations that are not super attractive. In, in Japan, there are no ghettos. Again, there are no deadbeats. There's no, no one's gonna be running a drug lab in your property or you know invite, inviting the entire family to squat over with them. There's not gonna be um, anything that you would need to be particularly concerned with. It, it's got other issues that are unique to Japan, but none of that. And similarly, the professional companies that you work with, so the property managers, the building management companies, or what's known as the uh, Body Corp in Australia, or the HOA uh, in North America, those companies are also as, as straight as by the book as they come. So insurance companies too. No, one, no one's actually, no one's got their hand in, in your pocket and, and trying to fleece you for um, any, any kind of extra fee that they can get. Everything is documented. Everything's got a paper trail several miles long, um, sometime, sometime to an extreme point. But the environment, the business environment from an investment perspective is very headache free, hassle free. It's basically invest, collect the rental income and barring um, very unique cases or between tenants, there's really not much to worry about, uh, which is an added attraction. And the third, which again adds to this um, cash flow sort of environment is the fact that properties are still aside from central Tokyo, central Osaka, a few other spots are still very affordable. So there are a lot of places in Japan where you could actually buy um, a cash flow positive uh, yield oriented asset for as low as 30, 40, 50,000 US dollars, which is not really achievable in other places. And aside from the fact that it gives you an easier entry point into the market, 
it also gives you a lot of diversity because for the same budget that you would have bought a single property in say Australia or the USA, you can buy three or four or five of them here, spread them out over a few geographical locations, socioeconomic tenant profiles. And also when a tenant moves out, you've lost a fraction of your income stream as opposed to everything if you've only owned uh, one or two properties for that same budget. So all, all of these sort of combine to make the investment environment here from an investment perspective um, very convenient for those who are looking for cash flow and probably not as alluring for anyone who's looking for something more speculative, um, capital growth, uh, leaps and bounds and so forth. Makes sense. Okay, so to define uh, the sorts of people that you work with that uh, are your customers uh, and interested in this market as you've just described, what's, what's sort of uh, entry level for, for, for those listening that want to help understand whether this is something they might want to do, what's the entry level uh, type um, customer you get? And then, you know, what's your core level? the bulk of your um, customers, what sort of level of investment are they looking at? And then the high end, I mean, who, who are they? Who are the people that are investing a lot of money in this market? So we serve all sorts, probably with the caveat that um, the very higher end of the market, the people who are buying uh, large office buildings and inner city hotels and um, shopping centers and so forth, they don't really need our assistance because they'll be hiring their own um, staff on the ground who will be working for them. They'll be setting up a branch company or, or branch office of a foreign company. Um, and they'll most likely be dealing uh, directly with the people who are selling these properties. So these are usually not, um, except some rare cases, these are usually not sold on the open market as much, but rather directly from a buyer to seller via their local social circles or business circles. So those types of customers don't really require our services, although we do sometimes consult them on an hourly basis if they just want to get a better idea of how, how the market works here. Um, our entry level, I would say, are people who are looking to um, sort of get their feet wet um, in any kind of real estate property market overseas. Some of them are familiar with Japan. Some of them are just looking for um, attractive or high yield investments. And so have come to learn about Japan, even though they're specifically not um, personally familiar with it. And they'll be purchasing smaller, older condo units. Again, uh, used to be anywhere from 1981, which was when the uh, latest earthquake resistant building standards were introduced for um, reinforced concrete buildings. These days, because of some new legislations that might be coming out in the next few years, we probably advise that people purchase 19, 91 or later, so 30 years or younger. And these are going to be um, one studio or one bedroom apartment with a separate kitchen, maybe a dining kitchen. Um, in any city, really, usually, aside from the last two years where prices have been a little bit softer, our customers usually prefer not to focus on uh, central Tokyo and central Osaka because um, prices there are higher and yields are lower. Um, but usually in either metropolitan centers or the suburban areas of uh, Tokyo and Osaka, um, second tier cities like Nagoya, Fukuoka, Kyoto, Sapporo, um, or satellite and prefectural capital cities. Um, so places like Saitama near Tokyo, uh, Kawasaki, Chiba City, Kobe near Osaka, 
um, Kumamoto, which is done here in Kyushu, also a prefectural capital that's been doing quite well. Um, uh, Matsuyama in the other city, um, whose name I always forget, on Shikoku. So those sort of smaller or prefectural capital cities where the population might be um, somewhat under a million, somewhere between 300 or 400,000 to a million population wide. Um, and those properties would start with the tier three would start at around 20, 30, 40,000 US and probably all the way up to 80 or 90,000 US for the entry level single condo unit type. And then our second popular uh, class is people who have a little bit more money and a little bit more experience. They'd probably be coming in with somewhere between three to 500 or 600,000 US. And depending on their personal preference, they'd either divide that into um, a few of these smaller, um, older units again, or they would be buying a small unit block, what's called here an apato. So somewhere between four to 10 or maybe 12 units in a, usually not a super central location, but a good, good solid suburban location. These would normally be younger um, because when you own the entire structure, you also own the entire maintenance. There are no monthly fees to set aside by the building management company for uh, structural maintenance. So we would advise um, for people buying these types of properties, we would advise because the maintenance is going to be on you, probably again, not to purchase anything younger than 20 years in this case, because the aparto blocks are usually made of wood um, or steel framed uh, skeleton with uh, wood uh, structural, uh, with wood structure between the steel frames. And those again, tend to start piling up in maintenance after about 20, 25 years. Um, so we would, probably advise most of these customers not to go for anything older than 20. Um, and beyond that, we do have some customers buying vacant land plots in very attractive areas that they might be constructing something on down the track. Uh, maybe a small kind of a yokan or onsen resort or a very small sort of apartment hotel or, or a small business hotel, which would go up to maybe one 1.5 million that's usually the range that our customers are active in and a lot of the reason for that is because like i mentioned 80 percent of them would be non-resident foreigners and for non-resident foreigners um, financing is not usually an option in japan there are some solutions these days in the last three years some companies have come out with some lending solutions for non-residents, but they're usually not very attractive for investment purposes. So most of them are cash buyers. So that tends to cap our typical client budget at about one, 1 1.5 million US. Okay. You're, you're breaking up a little bit there. So if, if it's your Wi-Fi, not mine, uh, have, a, have a check of that. Um, would anyone like to come up on the stage? I'll uh, hands, put your hands up. That's open so you can put your hand up and, and come and ask any questions. Um, and also a couple of people on, on Zoom. Do you have any questions? If so, drop them in chat and I'll ask them on your behalf. Just on the, um, the liquid, liquidity issue. So if someone's interested in doing this, they, they can slot in, in in some of those smaller apartments or small blocks. If things change and they want to get out of um, get out of this, what uh, what limitations or risks are there in Japan compared to elsewhere on being able to sell out? Um, 
Well, the market here is very, very liquid. So Japan is the world's uh, second biggest uh, property market, transaction-wise, and I think perhaps capital-wise, but I'm not sure about that one. So it's a very lively, liquid market. And when properties are priced uh, within reason, uh, and we can get into what that means for um, uh, private residence homes versus investment properties, but if they're priced within reasonable ranges as to what the market expects them to be priced, they're usually not going to stay on the market for longer than a month or two for the cheaper properties and maybe up to six months for the smaller buildings and so forth, the more expensive ones. So liquidity is usually not an issue. Um, the issue might be something that um, that plays into the equation if you're trying to get a, mar a market price that's just no longer feasible. And that can happen after an economic downturn. It can happen in the midst of a pandemic, obviously. It can also happen because investment properties here are usually, um, their price is usually determined by the yield that they can command. So if for any reason your rental income has dropped significantly, um, and that can be because an area for some reason is no longer popular or the economy took a downturn, rents are lower as a result of that, um, and now your yield is not as attractive as it was when it, you purchased the property, then you will need to slightly reduce the price at least. Um, but all things being equal, if the area is still doing well and the property is still generating a good income, you would normally be selling at least at your purchase price and in many cases at least slightly higher than that. Um, but again, no huge leaps and bounds. So this is not a, you know, buy a property, sell it in two, three years time, double your money. That's not going to happen here. Makes sense. So, um, yeah, people are welcome to come up on stage. And the first person to come up is Mika. How are you? Long time. How Hello. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a while. I spent five weeks in Finland and two weeks in quarantine, and now now I'm back. So three weeks nice in quarantine. I thought it was two, two weeks two, two, going down no, the no, five, two weeks, five, yeah. five five weeks in Finland, two weeks quarantine. Got two weeks. <laughs> that was long long weeks. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm not uh, uh, maybe a typical clientele for you, but uh, every now and then it comes in my mind. Uh, Living in Tokyo, uh, and as you said, the downtown Tokyo apartments are, are uh, out of reach for, for my own apartment, so I'm, I'm still on, on rent. But uh, getting uh, some, some smaller uh, rental home for someone else in order to maintain the value, providing stable monthly cash flow, backup home for later use, and especially with the capability of applying uh, Japanese uh, bank loans or other funding. Uh, you do that and any advice on, on how to proceed with that kind of idea? Um, yeah, so it is, it is fairly doable. The thing to take into account is that when you're going with a loan, the bank will have their own specific criteria as to what they will allow you or not allow you to borrow against. So they would want to see usually a younger property, uh, depending on whether it's a local bank or one of the mega banks, they would have very specific locations that they would um, sort of allow you to purchase in for the purpose of a loan. And also many of them would not allow you to do anything too creative with the property. So they might necessitate that uh, if you're leasing it out, it's only going to be a long-term lease. 
and not a monthly leases or if you've bought a house for example you might want to do it a, turn it into a share house or an airbnb type of operation there are plenty of companies that can help you to do that in japan but the bank might not allow it so the first thing to do is to just check with them what their actual purchase criteria for investment properties are and also to bear in mind that investment loans in japan um, the terms aren't identical to homeowner loans so the interest rate is a little bit higher. Um, the uh, deposit that you need to put down is uh, 30 to 40 percent, as opposed to a home loan, where they'll give you 100 uh, percent, maybe even more, maybe 105, 110, including purchase costs. So that doesn't happen with investment properties. So they're going to give you 60 to 70 percent of the property, and it will have to be very specific property criteria to suit what they'll agree to lend for. Um, but aside from that, it's it's quite doable. Yes. And do you do those? Um, we're not real estate agents and we're not really involved with the bank directly, but any property agent that you would be contacting who has a listing with an investment property on it, or any property agent that we would be contacting on your behalf as part of our services would have an existing relationship with at least one or two banks and they could definitely help you apply for that. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks Rika. Um, welcoming Yuka to the stage. How are you, Yuka? You're not in Japan at the moment, though, are you? No, I, I'd love to. I really I need to see my folks, but uh, I'm still in California. Um, so, hi, Ziv. Thank you so much for the very informative session here. And I'm, I'm probably not a, your typical audience, but uh, if I may ask two questions. Number one, um, my folks have a house on the coast of Japan and they are giving up on, on like uh, selling it because of uh, earthquake and tsunami issues um, after the you know like uh, what was it 2010 when I'm sorry maybe I got maybe way before but because of that 11? okay um, so it is it really true still that, uh, you know, the property values are near zero on coastal cities in Japan. And I have a totally different question. Ooh, I... Hello? Yeah, you were oh. cutting out there for a while, but I think, are you asking if it's true that um, they're completely worthless because they're coastal? Yeah. Um, that's not necessarily the case. Um, Japan is pretty used to dealing with earthquakes and tsunamis. I mean, we haven't had too many tsunamis, thank God, but um, right. the risk of those is pretty much factored into a lot of the uh, calculations that people make when they purchase property. I uh -huh. would say that the the location, so where exactly it is in the coast on the coast of Japan and whether that country, uh, that country, sorry, whether that city is doing well population and industry wise and how old the property is and um, that would play much more into it than the actual fact that it's on the coast okay all right thank you and then you know i still ha happen to uh listening in another club today and they're talking about uh this club was in japanese and they're talking about investment properties and they're saying there uh, the properties in kamakura uh those are appreciating very quickly. Uh, is is that a, you know your experience as well? And then also, if that's the case, why in Kamakura is that because of tourist city? Or if you could share some insight, thank you. 
Sure. So yes, Kamakura is one of the locations that's close enough to um, to Tokyo and uh, Tokyo, especially Tokyo's luxury market, um, for properties to enjoy the same dynamics that Tokyo enjoys. So when Tokyo goes up in price, which is basically any time the Japanese economy does well or has been so far. Uh, so places like Central uh, Yokohama and Kamakura tend to go up in price as well. With Kamakura specifically, um, it's gotten a, in the last decade or so, it's gotten a really high reputation as a sort of um, rich person's holiday home retreat kind of thing. And the fact that um, with the pandemic, a lot of the people who can afford to work from home have been working from home as further uh, just put a really high pressure on the uh, supply and demand dynamics for uh, bigger homes that have got an extra room or so. So anyone who can enjoy the luxury of working from home and has been thinking of potentially getting out of the city, Kamakura is just perfect. It's, um, it's a sort of luxurious holiday town uh, vibe to it, or at least for the, uh, for the homeowners there, not, not necessarily the fact that it's uh, attractive to tourists that may be you know that might be an attractive factor for them it might not be i'm not sure if they're anything like the kyotoites maybe they don't actually like the tourists that much but um it is considered a sort of luxury luxury um, not holiday but second home spot and it's been gaining more and more traction as that so if you think of the dynamics it's similar to maybe um hakone for example or izu peninsula um the more popular areas there it's just been gaining more and more uh, luxury standing, which tends to bring property prices up as well. Okay, do you have any idea what's the average price for like a maybe two-bedroom condo in nice area in US dollars? In Kamakura? Yes. Um, I haven't really seen too many condo deals coming out of Kamakura, so I can't really testify oh. to that. We've seen okay. um, very expensive houses there, but um, we haven't really looked at condos. I'm not sure how many concentrations of uh, mansions there are in Kamakura. I'm usually seeing house deals come out of there, so I can't really testify to that. Okay, anyway, thank you. Pleasure. So if anyone on Zoom, uh, a couple more people have joined, uh, would like to ask any questions uh, of Ziv or have any comments on um, purchasing and managing property in Japan. Just drop them in the chat. Same with down in the audience, put your hand up and, and uh, come up and ask Ziv some questions. Um, I've got one Ziv for, again, um, helping people decide if it's something they might want to do. If someone's got uh, a certain amount sitting in the bank and they want to carve off three to five million yen uh, to give it a go, just if they, they like it, they're quite, uh, comfortable with that level of investment and might do more in the future but starting with three to five million yen can they get into the market in that way and and what would they be looking at as a, as a typical thing that you might recommend for that sort of investment location type status yep so for the three to three and a half million yen they're probably not going to be in a, a tier one or tier two city so again it's going to be the prefectural capitals um, that we've mentioned earlier, um, places like uh, Kumamoto, maybe suburban Yokohama or Kawasaki, um, although that'll be scratching the four or five already. Um, Saitama, maybe not smack in the middle of the city, but maybe the more suburban areas of Saitama City or the more suburban areas of Chiba City. 
Um, suburban Kobe as well. If they can get up to four and a half, five million, then other locations become an option. Um, so a little bit more central on the uh, Yokohama Kobe side. Um, Nagoya becomes an option, maybe suburban Osaka. Um, Fukuoka City, not super central, but maybe something that's close enough to the center to, um, to generate potential capital growth as well. Um, so the, the thing to note with all of these locations that I'm mentioning is that um, they'll all yield um, good rental income. In fact, the more suburban ones will yield better rental income percentage-wise. Um, but the more central you can get, the more you stand to gain if and when any capital growth happens. So if you're purchasing very suburban or you're purchasing in a prefectural capital or you're purchasing in a satellite city, you're not very likely um, to gain in value even when the city and Japan's economy overall do well. And again, there are exceptions to that, but you're definitely going to be making um, comfortable rental yields, actually a bit more comfortable if it's less central. So those are all very viable options. In fact, the more our customers focus on yield and the less they focus on uh, potential growth, the more, the more they tend to drift towards these uh, edges of the cities rather than super central. Right, and, and you were talking eight eight and a half percent being a good um, a good uh, return, so to speak. That's probably the top costs, end. Uh, that's probably the top end of what we can end. get. So we might be able to get that in uh, Nagoya, where the tenants can be a little bit rougher around the edges. So could be a bit more payment mm. issues. The city is and I guess yeah. more money to invest means more likely uh, in the mid range to, to get that sort of return, but. What sort of running costs are there generally for anybody? And then on top of those, the, the costs of using a buyer's agent, someone to help manage everything except the tenants, um, the service you provide, what sort of running costs can they uh, expect? Um, well, when you say running costs, are we referring to the monthly or including purchase costs or which ones? You're breaking up a bit i'm not sure whether it's my internet or yours but um i'm hearing you okay yeah. uh i just mean um purchase and running cost or uh, only the uh, only the annual running you cost? charge for your services and and setting things up there would be some costs all that sort of thing but there would be if correct me if i'm wrong there'll be costs on an ongoing basis you know especially for people outside the country yes that's correct so Let's put the remote side and let's put using our services aside for a moment. So typical property transaction in Japan would involve uh, somewhere between 10 to 15% in purchase costs. And then the running costs, they vary a lot depending on whether you're buying a condo unit, a mansion unit, or you're buying uh, an entire structure. So if you're buying a mansion unit, there are monthly fees that you need to pay to the building uh, management company uh, who are managing the place on behalf of the owner union. And then those types of uh, monthly costs can vary a lot. So depending on how old the building is and how um, beautiful it is and how well it's being managed, these can vary from anywhere between 10% of the gross rental income and all the way up to 50% of the gross rental income for the really fancier properties. They usually hover somewhere around the 20, 30%. So it's important to look at a, when you're evaluating a potential deal, it's important to factor all of that in and look at what your bottom line comes to. And it's also important to remember that building costs need to be paid when the property is vacant as well. 
So you could be purchasing a property that's got 100 or $150 uh, a month, or uh, so let's call it uh, 10,000 or 15,000 yen a month in building costs. And everything's fine and dandy when it's tenanted because you're still getting a very high return. But if and when it becomes vacant, you're going to be paying 100 or 150 bucks per month without actually receiving any income from it. So that's a slightly higher risk factor than if, for example, you were paying 3,000, 4,000 yen a month or 8,000 yen even. And then the other running costs are when the property is uh, tenanted, you'll be paying your property manager uh, a certain percentage of the gross monthly rent. That would normally on average be 5% plus tax, so 5.5% uh, at the moment with 10% consumption tax. And then there is your insurance, which is fairly cheap in Japan. We're talking about uh, something like four or five thousand yen a year uh, for your landlord insurance and then if you want to uh, which we would advise if you also want to insure yourself against a case of the uh, death in the property which can happen a lot with elderly tenants uh, that's another maybe three to five thousand yen a year so all up insurance is not really a huge factor that's pretty cheap um, and nothing that we can um, quantify on a, on a guaranteed basis, but you'd usually want to put aside something like 10% of, um, of your net income for vacancy and maintenance related expenses. So when a property becomes vacant, it might stand uh, vacant for a month or two or three, sometimes more, and you would need to renovate and repair stuff. Um, sometimes when a tenant is living in the property, it doesn't happen often in Japan because they don't tend to... Um, um, bother the landlord too much, but sometimes you would have to replace a, a, an aircon unit or a hot water boiler and so forth. So statistically, probably a good idea to leave about 10% of your income aside for um, maintenance and vacancy expenses. And then if you need to use uh, someone like so. us... I'm getting a bit of breakup for, from you, but thanks for that, uh, Ziv. Okay. Welcoming uh, Francisco to the stage. Francisco, good to see you again. You're down, uh, uh, down um, Kansai, right? Uh, hi, guys. Uh, so uh, I used to live in Kansai. Now I'm living in Yokohama. Can, can you guys hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Jason, I okay, think cool. you're the one breaking up, mate. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, Francisco, let's uh, wait for Jason to come back. Meanwhile, go ahead and uh, ask your questions. Okay, sure. So, uh, do you see any differences uh, in between uh, properties uh, for rental, I mean, for people to live in uh, versus properties which are for like commercial use? Uh, me particularly, uh, I have an interest in, for example, uh, dance studios. I have a lot of friends who are dancers. I myself am uh, an amateur dancer. and. We spend a lot of money in, in rental studios. Uh, you know, like you know, the, the same ones that they use for yoga, for exercise, for anything. And uh, I've always been interested in uh, starting something in, in, in that space. And But I'm not really sure uh, what are the differences uh, between properties that you would buy uh, or rent for commercial use versus for living. Do you have any insights in, in that space? Um, yes. So basically the purchase and the management process, as far as um, 
how much it costs to buy the property and how much it costs to um, uh, to pay in building fees or insurance, for example, essentially the same. But the thing you really want to be looking at is um, so you're not you're not talking about buying a commercial property and renting it out to a dance studio. You're talking about running a dance studio there yourself. Exactly. So the idea is normally what happens is you, you, you have, for example, a 30 square meters place. You just pretty much uh, refurbished with like, you know, a, a easy to dance flooring and maybe uh, one wall is going to be all like mirrors and you rent it to people out like, you know, by the hour, for example. Yeah, well, in that case, the really the main considerations you want to take into account is the business considerations, right? So essentially, the profit you're going to be making on a place like that is not really related to uh, property dynamics, but business dynamics. So where will you advertise? How much will it cost you to advertise? What's going to be the cost per acquisition of person who's going to be renting it by the hour? And um, what sort of services you can provide to them to, to compete with other similar places? I mean... The, the factors that you want to take into consideration there are not really property related. So you might consider what you could do with the property if for any reason you stop running the business, then you might want to think about, okay, well, who can I rent it out to? Who's going to rent it from me? And um, if you've rented it out yourself uh, instead of purchasing, then you might want to consider the costs that it would uh, cost you to then bring the property back to the condition that you purchased it in so to take out of uh, take out of the equation the renovations you've made and make it just a blank commercial space again because you will be obliged to do that according to your tenancy lease um, but aside from that your main considerations are strictly business setup and business running considerations They're not really property related i would say okay thank you so uh so in general, uh, a commercial use uh, property is not going to have too many differences in terms of the, from the buying perspective from a, what would what I say, like, you know, one for, for living, right? So I, I don't really have to think too much about those differences. Not on the purchase side. If you're talking about renting the property yourself, then um, the tenancy leases can be a bit different to what you'd see on the residential front. So, for example, you need you might need to pay six months or a year in advance. There'll be more conditions in the in the contract again to make sure that you return it in the same condition you've received it in, and um, you probably will want to make the lease longer. So a typical tenancy lease is usually two years renewable, whereas if you're setting up a commercial lease, you might want to make sure that it's at least five years just to uh, ensure that you can keep using um, the property after you've renovated it. But if you're going to be purchasing it, then the um, the factors to consider are just about the same, I'd say, yes. Uh, property tax might be a bit more expensive. You might want to look at that um, before you actually make the decision to go ahead and factor it into your business calculations. Now, we're going to interrupt this broadcast. I always wanted to say that. We're going to interrupt this broadcast to give you a quick reminder that NTI is now partnered with Mita Securities Hospitality Property Fund, and they're offering their mind-blowingly gorgeous Machia townhouses in Kyoto. So there's four of them, each about 100 years or older, lovingly restored and renovated to modern standards luxury. Stunning architecture and comfort, all the modern conveniences, including uh, your scenic indoor or outdoor bath, spectacular dining and sitting rooms, disgustingly decadent Japanese or Western-style bedrooms, high-speed Wi-Fi internet, kitchen, outdoor decks, Japanese gardens, the works. Now, each of these homes can comfortably host two or three families, including kids. 
So anywhere from one or two guests and all the way up to a dozen or so. And you can rent the entire house to yourself. So no other guests. It's all yours. Run around naked all day and night long if that's your thing. Supreme Japanese-style luxury accommodation. And since at the moment there are still no foreign tourists in Kyoto, these places are available for rent at ridiculously low prices. So we're talking as little as $430 for a whole week. That's right, luxury accommodation for an entire clan, two families or more, for as little as four, five, or $600 a week. Obviously, the longer the stay, the cheaper the rate is, but you can rent these for anywhere between one or two nights and up to a month or more. So perfect for a weekend getaway, extended holiday, workation, family reunion, company retreat, or even as a gift to a valued client, whatever you might have in mind. And if you book these through our website, you're also going to get an added bonus of one or more 3,000 yen. So that's $30 QO cards, Q-U-O. Those are gift cards that you can use all around the country in convenience stores, restaurants, various stores, lifestyle shops, you name it. The number of cards you'll get depends on the length of the stay, but you'll always get at least one of these. So if you're in Japan, or even if you're out of Japan, but you think that you might be able to get in sometimes in the next year or two, and you've been thinking about spending some time in Kyoto, this is your chance to nab the best accommodation deal possible. So we'll link to the bookings page, which also has some amazing photo galleries for each of these properties on offer. Now, they all come with a fully equipped kitchen, but you can also choose to have your meals delivered to the property if that's your thing. The operator can arrange that for you at very reasonable prices. And if you can't see the show notes for any reason, just go to our website, nippontradings.com. That's N-I-P-P-O-N tradings with an S, all one word, nippontradings.com forward slash Kyoto hyphen holiday hyphen rentals, or just go to nippontradings.com and you'll see the Kyoto holiday rentals option on the top right menu bar. Now we are already taking bookings, so some of the properties may not be available on your dates, but Mida security guys are super accommodating and they'll do their best to find you an available property for whenever it is you're planning your trip, get on there, book your inquiry, and take that dream holiday in Kyoto that you've been fantasizing about while these phenomenal prices are still available. And now, back to the podcast. Okay, last question. Uh, I think you mentioned about uh, loan versus uh, all-cash buyings. Uh, in your perspective, do you think... Uh, in this case of uh, commercial use properties, do you, do, do you think uh, all cash uh, deals are a better, uh, give you better deals than uh, loan deals? Uh, or what is your point? What's your view in there? Um, well, I think it's going to be more challenging to get a business loan than it is to get an investment loan, which in turn is more challenging than getting a homeowner loan. Um, so the first step, you'd be need to present your bank with a business plan and see if they would grant you a business loan for this purpose. Um, chances are they might grant you a business loan that involves renting a property. I'm not sure if they'll grant you a business or investment loan for the purpose of purchasing it. So if you're going to be purchasing a commercial property and then renting it out to somebody else, they might be more inclined um, whereas if you're going to be running a business in it by yourself, they'll want to be, they'll want to see a lot more details about your personal experience, your business plan, uh, how exactly you're planning to profit and so forth. So it could be more challenging, but um, if you can get the financing for it, um, 
it might be an interesting option. I mean, um, look, it's really very much a personal preference from from our perspective as as people who buy properties. A seller will always prefer to sell to a cash buyer because they don't need to consider whether the bank is going to approve the loan or not approve the loan. And there's always that um, question mark over uh, somebody who's buying with a loan unless they have a pre, uh, pre-approval from the bank for exactly this type of property. It's always possible that at the last minute the deal will fall through. So a seller will always give um, uh, preference, uh, as well as the agents, will always give preference to somebody who's buying in cash. So you're not going to miss out on as many properties um, if you're buying in cash, as opposed to if you're buying with a loan. There's always a danger that um, someone with cash will just swoop in and uh, take the deal off your hands at the last minute. Okay, thank you very much. Pleasure. I'm not sure if we got Jason back. Thanks, Francisco. James, how are you? Welcome to the stage. Are you here in Japan? I can't tell. Hey, sorry, were you talking to me? Yep, Jamie. Yeah, sorry, I had a question around the edge cases for loan. Uh, I'm a foreigner who doesn't have uh, tax filing uh, in Japan yet, but I was wondering if there was a way to get a personal or residential loan to purchase a house. Um, no, the short answer is unfortunately not. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Uh, Ziv, may I make one continuous question uh, to of course, your, of course, uh, your go comments? Uh, you were mentioning earlier that you would expect nowadays something like, let's say, roughly 8% uh, return. No, no, I said the, the maximum that we can get is about 8%. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, is that including the, the impact of all the running costs and whatever you were mentioning later? So is it the net or, or gross? Yes. So what we try to do um, to help people understand what they're actually buying is um, if you look at property listings on the open market in Japan, um, they're a bit confusing when they're referring to um, gross or coupon yield, as they call it. And then at the bottom of the ad or maybe in, in prominent red letters, they write net yield, such and such. That's not really net yield because they don't factor the purchase costs into it and they factor the building costs, the building fees into it in case of a condo unit, but they're not factoring in uh, property management costs. So you always want to take off, um, depending on whether it's a house or a unit, you want to take off uh, somewhere between one to four percent from what you actually see um, displayed as net yield. So what we do when we provide um, any sort of communication to our clients, whether it's deal analysis spreadsheets or uh, just communication via email or like what we're talking about right here. So when we quote any sort of percentage, we always make it clear that it's net pre-tax. So that means uh, including all of your purchase and known running costs, but excluding what we don't know, which is your individual tax circumstances and any sort of maintenance uh, or vacancy expenses that you might run into. And the reason we don't quote these only even as estimates is because um, firstly, everyone's got a different tax perspective. Some people are going to be buying under a company name, some people under an individual name. They might be at this tax threshold or another tax threshold. So we wouldn't know what their tax situation would be. We're not their accountants. And with maintenance and vacancies, um, like I said, we can assume a statistical average of something like 10% of the rental income. 
Um, but that sort of average is hugely skewed when you're talking about smaller portfolios or portfolios held over a shorter period of time. So yes, the average is 10%, but if you're owning a single condo unit, you bought it and then your tenant moves out after two months, uh, which can happen. And if that tenant's been in place for 10 or 15 years, which is not uncommon in Japan, you're suddenly looking at a huge renovation bill. So that's going to be way more than 10% of the rental income you still didn't even get. Um, whereas you might be purchasing a property and the tenant stays in it for another 10, 15 years and you've got zero maintenance and vacancy expenses um, for the next five or six or seven years. So we prefer not to include these sort of estimates in our quotes. So it's always a net pre-tax is what we call it. That's a long, long answer to a short question, but I hope you understand what I mean. Got you. Thank you. So thanks uh, everyone for joining us. Is the Business in Japan Weekly Clubhouse streaming to Zoom for those that uh, for some reason don't want to join Clubhouse? Um, and we've got with us uh, Ziv Magen Nakajima. Nakajima and Magen, but that's okay. I'll take it. I missed you. Breaking up? No, I'm here. Still here. I can't hear you for some reason. Still here. But uh, constantly here. And uh, he uh, runs his own business with his partner Nippon Tradings Japan, and uh, giving us some insights into purchasing and managing uh, investment property, uh, holiday um, property. You mentioned there's been some demand uh, for recently. Can you tell us a little bit about that market? Um, yep, so that's been a very popular market for us uh, in the last four to five years. We see more and more people interested in that. And I guess a lot of it is because of the, um, the many articles that have been uh, showing up on foreign media channels about those uh, cheap $1, $5, $500 houses in countryside Japan, the abandoned homes, the Akia. Um, those are, of course, completely inaccurate, as anybody living in Japan probably knows, but it has brought up a lot of interest for people looking for holiday homes. Um, so the ones that we facilitate are usually either condo units uh, by the beach or occasionally near a ski resorts or winter sport resorts. And those go from anywhere... The cheaper ones can be only a few thousand dollars or ten, fifteen thousand dollars, but they come with very hefty monthly fees. So people are selling them because they no longer use them and they don't want to be paying um, two, three hundred bucks a month in monthly fees. And the nicer ones um, that cost a little bit more with more reasonable monthly fees near the beach, for example, um, usually go for anywhere between 10 to 20, 25 million yen. So between um, 80,000 to maybe 220,000 US and then larger holiday homes out in the countryside near onsen resorts or in the mountains in really beautiful locations and near the beach as well. Um, the sky is the limit but usually our customers would prefer either a beautiful old uh, very old traditional type of house in the 60, 70, 100 year uh, old mark um, with those heavy wooden beams that you'd expect to see uh, in traditional uh, traditional Japanese architecture, or simply older, cheaper homes in the countryside that they can uh, maybe DIY or renovate or even just use as they are 
in which case they could be a lot cheaper. So maybe five, six, seven million yen, so up to 70,000 US. And usually the people who come to us with those kind of requirements know very well the type of locations that they're looking for. They'll have a list of specific locations that they like to stay in when they come to Japan on holiday, um, particular uh, distance that they want to be from any given station, uh, what sort of view they want, uh, if they want a balcony or a garden. So they'll have very specific requirements and then we, uh, we do our best to try and help them uh, find anything that they're looking for, if it's possible within their budget. Sometimes it's not. Makes sense. Got a question uh, from Zoom. Is it possible um, to buy rental property in Japan um, if you don't live here? Do you have to live in Japan to buy a rental property here? No. So as I mentioned, um, most of our vast majority of our customers do not actually live in Japan or don't have any sort of uh, um, non-temporary well, residency. You're breaking up a bit. I don't know whether it's me or you. Um. I'm not sure I'm hearing you perfectly. Can you hear me now? Maybe my end. Uh, I'll just check Sean can hear you, but please go on. Yeah, so Japan is actually the only country in the Asia Pacific region that doesn't have any limitation on foreign ownership of real estate. So the land is completely freehold uh, in the vast majority of cases and the properties are completely free for anyone to buy. There's also no added taxes for foreigners. So we pay the exact um, Non-resident foreigners pay the exact same purchase and running costs as anybody else and the exact same taxes. They actually pay a bit less tax because they don't need to pay um, municipal residential taxes and so forth. But the challenge becomes then um, dealing with the practical on the ground sort of management of things because while there are no official government policies prohibiting anything um, as far as purchase and management goes, finding local companies that can actually help you with the purchase and the management, um, having a bank account to collect rental income into and pay expenses out of, um, having a physical address and phone number, which is still very much a requirement for many things. That is the challenge and that is basically the other reason that we exist. So aside from our professional expertise, the main reason people need to use us is because they, they just physically, logistically, cannot purchase and manage their properties without an agent on the ground. And unless you're going to be setting up a company and hiring staff, which is maybe worth it for bigger portfolios, you need somebody who can do it um, efficiently and cheaply. And that's one of the main reasons we exist. Jason? <laughs> Not sure if he's with us. Um, Levine, can you hear me? Got Levine in the audience. Um, it's breaking. It's breaking up a bit for me, but um, uh, Sean could hear you, and thanks you for the information. No worries. We got Levine there. I'm not sure if he can hear us now. He, she. Levin. Hello. What's up, bro? Hey, hey, how are you? I'm fine, brother. Yeah, go ahead, mate. What's your question? I want to buy some popcorn in Japan. So how can I? Um, do you have a rough idea of your budget? What kind of property? For what purpose? Give me a bit more than a property. I want to buy some 
property. I want to buy a home in Japan. How can I? A home to live in? Are you resident in Japan? Are you out of the country? What's your individual? No, I'm in Japan. You are in Japan. And you want to buy it in cash or with a loan? Mm, I want to buy for a loan. With a loan. Okay. Are you um, employed in Japan? Are you a seller? Do you have a salary in Japan? Are you a kaishain? Yeah, I'm a kaishain. Okay. And how long have you had your salary for? I don't know. So I want to know. No. How, how long have you been employed in Japan? How long do you have your job? It's for 30, 40 years. 30, 40 years? No, no. 13, 14 years. 13, 14 years. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, basically any property, the first step would be maybe to go into your bank and just tell them that you want to get a loan and just make sure that they can give it to you. But it definitely sounds like you should be eligible for a loan. And so the next step would be to look at... Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So the next step would be to look at property listings that would work within your budget. So... Your bank would normally uh, give you up to seven times your annual salary. So if your annual salary, for example, is uh, 10 million, they'll give you uh, up to 70 million yen for the purchase. So you want to look for properties that suit the loan that you can get. And then depending on your... Uh, how's your Japanese? You've been here 13, 14 years. I'm guessing you can uh, at least speak, if not read and write uh, perfectly. Yeah, it's pretty difficult to read and write. Kanzi. Yep. So you might need, depending on the agent you go to, the uh, wh whereabouts are you? Which city in Japan? I'm from Fukuoka. No. Oh, you're in Fukuoka? Yeah. Oh, mate, we're neighbors. Okay. <laughs> so. Are you from Fukuoka? Yeah, we're in Fukuoka as well. Where are you from? Fukuoka. Um, well, our office is in Sakurazaka and we're uh, living in uh, Jonanku. Oh, it's near for me. Sorry? It's very near for me. Which one? Sakurazaka or Junanku? Sakurazaka. It's near from Roppanmatsu? Yes, yes. Next station up from Roppanmatsu. Yeah. Um, so, look, if you'd like, we can, we can help you get a look around first. But maybe the first step would be to go to your bank and just confirm that you can get a loan. So if you can speak Japanese, you don't need to have legal reading and writing uh, proficiency if you can speak basic Japanese conversation you can just step into the bank and tell them that you want to buy a house and then they'll tell you um, what minimum a uh, what maximum age and what maximum budget to look for and once you've got that information from the bank you can bring it to us and we'll be happy to help you okay brother thank you so much if I have some problem I'll call you yep no problem so um I've got my, uh, if anybody here who needs more information on anything, just click my, um, my face there and you'll be on my Clubhouse profile. And there you can uh, follow me in Clubhouse, which will give you a, a notice when I speak in any room. But that doesn't happen that frequently. So maybe the best way would be just to send me a message. And um, you've got options on the profile, whether it's um, uh, Instagram or Twitter or uh, my favorite, which is LinkedIn. Just send me a message and... Uh, We'll, we'll keep talking anything that you want to talk offline as well. Hi, Zev, if I may. Yep, go for it. Okay, so let's say I'm rich enough or fortunate enough that I can purchase a property, a rental, and then I'm a U.S. citizen. So for the, the rental income, 
do I have to pay taxes on the rental income in Japan and here in the state, right? Yes, but you're not paying double the tax. So you'll be paying your rental in, uh, you'll be paying your income tax in Japan based on whatever you're making. And depending on what you purchase, you might be tax free. So income tax in Japan starts from, um, I think, 375,000 yen net per annum. So if you're factoring in all of your purchase costs that you'll be carrying forward for three years and then you might have just one or two smaller properties that don't reach that you might be tax-free in Japan but in any case you'll be paying pretty low income tax here even if you will be and then you present your tax return at the US uh, via if you're using an accountant or directly to the tax department in the USA and then you yes. pay you pay the difference in the USA so if you've already paid for example uh, 5% in Japan and then your uh, tax threshold in the USA is let's call it uh, for example 25% so you'll only be paying the extra 20% on that income so the two companies have a tax treaty in place you're not going to be paying double tax oh okay all right great okay but still extra 20% sounds high but anyway because that's that's the US okay anyway, yeah. okay thank you no worries at all Jason, you still with us, mate? Everybody can hear me except you, I swear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Jason. Yeah, I can't hear you. Yeah, I think um, we got issues with Jason, actually. Uh, oh, Jason has issues with his line. So, um, yeah, I'm, I think, oh, there he is. There he is not. I'm here, but uh, but I am uh, I'm having trouble with audio, you're right. Yeah. I'm hoping it's flowing in uh, correctly to um, the Zoom recording at least. But uh, yeah, can you hear me now okay? Is it breaking up? No, no, we, we can always hear you perfectly. It's just that you can't hear me, I think. Yeah, unfortunately. But I uh, thank you from Sean and uh, on Zoom and uh, he asked for your details, so handed that over, Sean Morris. Thanks for that, Sean. Um, okay, so is there anything that you wanted to to cover that we haven't yet uh, that people should be thinking about uh, when in investing specifically to manage and grow that investment not not living in it um, not flipping it for a capital growth but uh, to for a long-term investment perhaps what should people uh, in here in Japan be thinking about yeah I would say a couple of things what first of all what uh, ways can they they um, leverage it. Maybe they bought one small property, it works well, and they're ready to go out and borrow some money and, and perhaps buy a part or a, block, a small block in a small um, um, uh, rural city or something like that, surrounding city, second tier city. What else uh, should the people be thinking about? Well, the first thing to consider is that um Leveraging your equity is not a thing in Japan. So your borrowing capacity has nothing to do or very little to do with the assets you're holding and everything to do with the uh, income that you're generating every month. So depending on what your income is, and usually your salaried or, or um, business income will be much higher than your um, income from any small investment property, um, that's going to determine your borrowing capacity. So there's no really the equity sort of play that we see in other countries. That doesn't happen with the banks here in Japan. Um, aside from that, for managing investments, I would say um, don't get um, uh, glittering object syndrome, meaning, you know, you might see a listing online in some um, 
far, far away sort of prefectural capital that's not really a capital or somewhere that, you know, officially is a part of Tokyo, but is actually an hour, hour and a half away from the city. And yields might look very high on paper, but as soon as a tenant moves out, you're going to be stuck for a year or two or three without a tenant because those areas are losing population and no industries to speak of, nobody moving into those spots. So don't look at um, shiny um, potential net yields, but actually try to say safe and stable if you can buy something that's a little bit, a little bit newer and better locations and maybe catering to a couple or a small family if you can get anything with reasonable yield because those types of tenants stay longer and um, maybe play it safe and stable until you establish um, say 80% of your or 70% depending on your risk appetite of your investment portfolio and then get more adventurous with the remaining 20 30 35% whatever it is you've decided to allocate and go test out um, more remote locations, more um, flexible uh, rental agreements, monthly um, Airbnb and so forth. The other thing is like everything in Japan, relationships really, really matter. So if you're doing it through someone like us, we'll um, manage those relationships uh, for you in the sense that we'll tell you um, what you might be doing that might just not be acceptable to the professionals that you're working it with. But if you're doing it yourself, um, stay polite and professional with the, with the um, property professionals that you're working with. So for example, overseas, it's very common to submit applications on four or five, six different properties that you're interested in, and then just go ahead with the one that you like best eventually, um, and just pull the other offers back without any um, substantial reason, aside from the fact that you've chosen a different property. If you do that in Japan, that realtor will never speak to you again. It's just not done here. So you want to take it nice and slow. You want to build a relationship with a particular agency. Make sure that they understand what exactly you're looking for. Make sure that they understand why you've decided not to go ahead with a property purchase. Give them a good reason so that they can understand it and fine tune the selections they give you next time. Because if you come in um, shooting in all directions and tire kicking and then just... Um, backing off deals without any notice, um, you're going to lose a very valuable potential business connection. And you're being a foreigner in Japan, you're already limited with the amount of companies that will agree to work with you from the get go. So maintain and nourish those relationships properly if you want to build something long term with these people. And the same goal for property management companies. So the attitude in many countries, and it's a justifiable attitude, is that I got to watch these guys like a hawk because they're going to grab everything they can off me and they're going to just put in crappy tenants in my apartment and they're not going to take good care of it. And if you sort of take this approach with the property management companies that you work with, with um, here in Japan, you're going to lose them. They're not going to continue to work with you and you want to get a good property manager in every city that you're active in for them to manage uh, the bulk of your properties in that city, because once they get to know you and how you like to run things and what sort of tenants you prefer to have, um, they'll apply that to the rest of your portfolio as well down the track. And it's a relationship that's gonna get fine-tuned over the years as you work together. So same sort of thing, um, set up and nourish and maintain those relationships um, politely and professionally, and that'll definitely help you um, with the help of these professionals, they know what they're doing, and usually they will be knowing what they're doing, and they'll help you fine-tune and, and get the best profit out of your... Just listen to your professionals, is what I'm saying. Um, Jim? Yep. Sorry, 
to me again. Um, it, uh, thank you for mentioning Airbnb. So it was my understanding Airbnb didn't take off in Japan. So that's not that's not true then. No, Airbnb people, is definitely oh. definitely a thing in Japan. There have been oh. yeah, there have been uh, more strict regulations that came in late two thousand eighteen that try to um, regulate the market more. So these days. Um, if you're not going to be living in the property, you're going to have to have a registered Minpaku management company who's going to be managing it on your behalf. And depending on the local municipality, that uh, management company will need to be within a certain distance from the property. You'll need to comply with more um, fire and safety regulations than before. And you're definitely not going to be able to do them if you own um, a single unit in a, in a condo block. So if, you're, if you've got a kumiai, an owner union, they're not going to allow Airbnb in the vast majority of cases. But if you own the entire building or the house and you comply with your local uh, uh, ward office regulations, then it's definitely still a thing. People do it every day. Okay, thank you. No, no worries. And the um, the sort of the middle ground between uh, Minpaku and long-term leasing is monthly monthly mansion, what they call here monthly mansion, which is uh, leasing out by the month. And that's a lot easier to manage because uh, it falls under normal tenancy laws. And the uh, Kumiya, even if they don't like it, they can't really legally prohibit it. Um, so it doesn't might not gain as much in, in uh, rental income as Airbnb or Minpaku can, but it's a lot easier to manage legally. Um, but just as a caveat, these days, until the COVID restrictions ease off and people start moving into and out of the country more regularly, that's probably not the best uh, strategy either way. I'm sorry. What is Minpaku? It's not. A, it's not. It's not Minshuku, right? It's a Minpaku is a Japanese for Airbnb. Minpaku is what Airbnb falls under. So it's not Minshuku in the sense oh. that you're not a licensed business running a hotel or a, or a yokan, but you're doing a casual short-term leasing. Uh, sort of thing, and they created a special uh, legislative uh, uh, framework for that. Okay, thank you. I, wow, I learned a new term too. Thank you. Pleasure. And for, for Minipaku, uh, are there rules on the number of days you can you can use for you, for Minipaku uh, standard across Japan, or are they specific to particular prefectures or ku? Um, so the general legislation limits the casual minpaku to 180 days a year. So you can only rent them out officially as a minpaku for half the year, but you can definitely make up the difference with um, monthly rentals. And a lot of people, even if they rent a place out by the week, for example, they, they put on the lease. So if you're doing monthly rentals, you have to have an actual tenancy lease in place. But a lot of people will make the lease for a month, but then just charge the customer based on a week or whatever it is, uh, the length of time that they want to stay. So there are ways around that 180, but certain municipalities have certainly limited that even beyond that. So there are some places in Japan where you can only do it on the weekends. There are certain city wards um, or streets where you cannot do it at all because it's too close to a school or, or a, a public uh, uh, elderly care facility. So. There's a lot to look into before you go that way, but it is it is doable. And your Minpaku management company will usually be able to give you the uh, heads down on what's possible and where. Fantastic. And for for those people listening in, uh, even the recording, they want 
uh, they want to buy a place and they want to rent it out, they want to leverage what you've been discussing today and then they want to move in. And they're imagining that they can combine uh, their own um, property or plans, perhaps a, a holiday place, and then they retire there, they're getting close. Uh, is that realistic? It is realistic, but they're not purchasing a property that's primarily an investment property. So usually the people who are using these properties when they come to Japan and then renting them out for the rest of the year, they're going to be making enough money to cover their maintenance and purchase and um, holding costs. And they might, you know, make a bit of side money to cover their trip to Japan when they come here. But it's not a real profit driver in the sense that um, if you were to pick a straight out investment property, your criteria would probably be a lot different to maximize profits. So it's definitely a, a strategy and people do it, uh, but they do it more to um, save on expenses than to actually make a profit. Thanks, uh, Ziv. And, and the other common question uh, was I'm outside Japan. I want to invest in Japan. Can I do that? Which you, you covered. What about I'm outside Japan. I've got a lot of income and a lot of uh, deposit, but I want to leverage uh, borrowing money in Japan. Can I do that? Um, there, at the moment, there are very few solutions. Uh, one of them is uh, Shinsei Investment and Finance, a subsidiary company of Shinsei Bank. Um, another one is uh, Mita Securities in Tokyo and Hong Kong, I think, but they're um, focused on more short-term loans, so not really what you'd imagine from a mortgage. And another one is Oryx in Hong Kong. There's also Bank of China and Bank of Taiwan, but Oryx, uh, China, Taiwan, uh, not Bank of Taiwan, sorry, Star Bank. But those would normally only lend to people holding passports from those countries. Shinsei is more open to uh, whichever country you're from, but they will necessitate that you set up a company in Japan, uh, a branch office of an existing foreign company or a wholly Japanese entity. So the first things to take into account is just by doing that, you're looking at two, three thousand bucks a year in accounting and bookkeeping fees for a corporate entity. So you want to make sure your portfolio is worth that. And the other thing is that they will necessitate central Tokyo properties only. They might consider central Osaka. Um, and their minimum uh, location requirement does mean a pretty expensive property. So you might find out that what you're putting down as a cash deposit is what you could have used um, to buy a property outright in any other location. And also they will not allow you to do anything except long-term leases and only through their designated property managers as a condition of the loan. Um, so if for any reason you're not happy with a property management company, you're only limited to what the bank will allow you to use. And you're definitely not going to be able to get um, flexible or creative with leases or anything of that sort. And um, interest is somewhere between 3 to 4% from memory. Um, so just not, not super attractive loan terms. We have referred many people to speak to them, but I can't tell you that I've got anyone that's actually gone with that loan. So... Um, options are pretty limited for non-residents as far as loans are concerned. Yeah, I heard in, in uh, Australia it can be difficult too, but uh, there are companies that become your local partner to get around that. And it's, it's I guess, also more the larger investments. If you've got a, real... Is a local partner of any help here? 
Um, if you've got a real business in Japan or you're setting up a real business for the purpose of investing in property and you've got a local business partner um, who's going to be managing the Japanese presence for you and they are long-term residents and they're going to be co-signatory to the loan, which is an important uh, piece of the puzzle there, and then yes, a lot more options open up. But then you're really setting up an infrastructure that you need to make sure you can maintain uh, on an annual basis. So that's something to actually put into a business plan and see if the numbers work. Plus finding that kind of partner is not that easy. Somebody who's actually gonna co-sign a loan with you, um, they don't come uh, as easy as that. Fair enough. All right, and uh, of course, I'm gonna um, tell you to explain how people can get in touch with you. But before that, um, what sort of resources have people got to learn more about this? If they're just uh, kicking tires, that's interesting to them, they've enjoyed today. What other resources can they get from you? I know you've got a podcast, NTI, uh, publish a lot on social media, uh, you're here on Clubhouse. What are the different ways that people can learn more from what you're doing around this subject in Japan? Yep, so depending on what people like to consume, if they like audio, uh, the Japan Real Estate Podcast, we're the only ones out there. Just to search for it on your uh, iTunes store or Google it or Spotify, you'll find only one Japan Real Estate Podcast, which is us. And um, if you go all the way back to the beginning, those are pretty um, sort of walkthrough guides. And then as we progress with the years, we've got more diverse content. So you can just browse and see what sort of content interests you. Um, all of those episodes are also on our YouTube channel, uh, which again, the uh, Japan Real Estate uh, YouTube channel. I think there's mainly just one of us out there. Uh, the company is called Nippon Tradings International. So um, on our website, once you click onto our website for the first time, you'll get an option to download our eBooks. There are a couple of eBooks, one of them basic investment strategies, one of them a lot of case studies and deal analysis and so forth. Um, and those are a collation of articles that uh, we or I've written over the years. And those articles continue to evolve. So if you uh, hop onto my LinkedIn profile, you'll probably find a lot more uh, stuff over there. Uh, the Japan Real Estate Group on uh, Facebook is one that we also managed. It's pretty, um, pretty good. A lot of people uh, publishing sample properties, questions, Q&A and so forth. Um, that's, uh, that's it probably on our website itself, which has a lot of articles as well. Fantastic. And that's uh, nippontradings.com. Yep. And one. for email, yep. zmagen at nippontradings.com. Yep. Or if that's uh, tough to remember, just info at nippontradings.com and ask to, uh, ask to be referred to me. Awesome. Thanks very much, uh, Ziv. Always good to, to hear. And I think we covered everything pretty comprehensively today. Thanks very much for coming in and speaking to the Business in Japan. Uh, audience my pleasure and um, Jason you were saying at the beginning I'm gonna see you in December so if you give me a minute I'll just pluck that one mm, please so this December in Fukuoka December 10 11th 12th we're uh, going to be combining mine and a few friends um, passions which is business and gaming so board games card games that sort of thing and a lot of business networking we're going to be holding an event at, uh, at a hotel in Fukuoka, three-day event, um, full room and board or just a room if you want. Um, so if you've got even a passing interest in any of those two things, whether it's business networking or gaming, 
uh, definitely hit us up and we'd love to see you there. Jason's going to be uh, our business speaker. I'm probably going to be holding a short talk as well. And we are really looking for game designers or anybody in the gaming industry in Japan who can actually carry a, a conversation in English and give a presentation. Um, they're an elusive bunch, so we haven't found a speaker yet. But the people will definitely be there. So if you're interested in networking, mingling, uh, anything to do with business and or gaming, we'd love to see you there. Fantastic. And I just thought of someone who created a game, so I'll uh, introduce you. I think he's still in Japan. Awesome. All right. Thanks also to the Business in Japan community for always joining us at lunchtime. Um, if you've got any subjects you want us to cover at lunchtime, if you want to speak yourself, um, if you've got a group of people you'd like to get a panel together to talk about something and get people feedback who, who can join and ask questions and share their experience, reach out to me. Uh, LinkedIn's the best place, but I'm, I'm everywhere. And uh, you can certainly follow me here on Clubhouse. You can follow the Clubhouse Club by tapping the greenhouse icon there. And the Business in Japan group on LinkedIn if you're not already a member. For anyone who's Japanese or speaks Japanese, read and write. There's also a Business in Japan uh, Nihongo. It's uh, not as old uh, and about 10% of the members, but it's still uh, a Japanese language business in Japan group you can join on LinkedIn. So thanks again, everyone, for coming up. Yuka, good to see you again, Francisco. Uh, everyone who joined us uh, to speak today and ask these great questions. Those on, on Zoom always appreciated the uh, questions and taking part there. Um, yeah, this is recorded, probably will be available through Ziv. Um, or if you want it, uh, I'm not publishing any at the moment, uh, but I have some recordings if there's something you you missed uh, and you promise not to publish it uh, publicly, I can certainly share, share uh, recordings like this with you. All right, everyone have a great week. It's a beautiful day. Uh, the state of emergency has been lifted. The smell is in the air of the great food you can find in Japan and uh, things are looking up. So have a great one and uh, we'll see you again either at 9.30 tonight for Founded in Japan or next week at lunchtime. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that was a nice long chat there. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did. And again, Jason is going to be one of the guest speakers at our business networking and gaming weekend in Fukuoka in December. So if you haven't registered for that one yet, what are you waiting for? I'll also be giving a short presentation on property investment in Japan and how to profit from it. And I'm happy to say we have finally managed to also source a gaming industry speaker. So more details on that coming soon. Hop over to the event page. We'll link to that again in this episode's show notes and secure your ticket today. You can also find out more about the event on Facebook. Our page there is called BNG, Business Networking and Gaming. And you can find out more details about the event, the speakers, the games we'll be playing, a gorgeous photo gallery of the venue, the Montan Hakata Hotel, and much, much more. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com. 
and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku.